Hello, and welcome to A History of Hannibal, Episode 2, Meet the Romans, Part 1. Before we get into the Punic Wars, it's worth looking at who will be fighting them, Rome and Carthage. So, we best familiarise ourselves with them both, so we know who we are dealing with in the future. This episode, we will introduce the Romans. I am aware that not all of you listening to this will be familiar with Roman jargon. You may have no idea what I meant if I said. To face the oncoming danger, the two consuls, elected by the Committee Centuriata, made their way to Campania. Each consul had an army of consular size, made up of the usual Hastati, Principes, Triarii, and Equites. On the other hand, you may have understood perfectly what I meant there, in which case, you may consider this episode a recap. Not something to be treated lightly, though. Knowing the details, troop movements and strategy that led to the destruction of Varro's forces at Canai is nothing without knowing the basics. So, let's get into it, shall we? In fact, uh, no, we shall not. This was my original introduction. But, as I sit here typing away, it appears my little introduction to Rome has turned into a monster episode. Much, much longer than expected. So, this is what we shall do. This week, in part one, we shall look at the Roman Constitution, the People's Assemblies, the Magistrates and the Senate. We shall follow this up next week in part two by looking at the Roman military, Roman religion and some Mediterranean geography. Before finally going over early Roman history, very quickly, up to the First Punic War in part three. Before finally getting to Carthage in episode five. So, now we shall get into it. Having thrown out the kings, supposedly in 509 BC, Rome was a republic. SPQR, Senatus Populus Que Romanus, the Senate and the people of Rome. Those who follow our Learning Latin series will soon be able to translate that sentence, but that's neither here nor there. There are essentially three parts of the Roman constitution. The Senate, the people, and the magistrates. These three powers all balanced each other out, so no one power could gain complete control. Needless to say, this idea has survived into the modern world. The first three articles of the American Constitution set out the balance of power between the executive branch of government, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. We'll start with the people. The people were, in theory, sovereign. Power came from the people. Only the people could invest power to the magistrates. Only the people could pass laws. How did the people do this? They did not elect representatives to vote on laws, as we do in the British Parliament or the American Congress. They did not vote on laws where one person had one vote, as happened in Athens. Instead, they voted in groups, in assemblies presided over by magistrates, of which there were four. The Committee Curiata, the Committee Centuriata, the Committee Tributa, and the Concilium Plebis. The Committee Curiata was a relic from the days of the monarchy, and was irrelevant, 
to what we shall be looking at, so it shall not be mentioned any more. The Comita Centuriata was an assembly which voted in centuries. There were 193 centuries in the assembly, each having one vote, regardless of how many people were in them. There were seven classes of centuries, based on property qualifications. The first class was the officer class, the equites, or knights. They had 18 centuries. The next five classes were made up of enlisted soldiers. The first of these classes had 80 centuries. Classes 2 through 4 had 20 each, and class 5 had 30. In these five classes, there was further division. 85 centuries were composed of the junior soldiers, aged 17 to 45, while the other 85 were made up of senior soldiers, aged 46 to 60. There were much fewer senior soldiers than junior soldiers. This gave much more weight to the opinions of the senior soldiers. Cicero defended the system, saying that the senior soldiers had much more to lose and so should have a bigger say in the system. I personally suspect that this was to further skew the system in favour of the more conservative aristocracy. The final five centuries belonged to the miscellaneous class. There were four centuries of artisans and musicians, such as trumpet players and horn blowers, and then one final century for the landless masses. The officers would vote first, then the first class, then the second class, etc. The Comitia Centuriata was important because it voted for the major magistrates, the consuls, the praetors, and the censors. We'll see later what each of these officers did. It was the only institution that could declare war. It could ratify a census and could pass laws. The next assembly we'll look at will be the Comitia Tributa, the Tribal Assembly. Rather than the 193 centuries in the Comitia Centuriata, the Comitia Tributa had only 35 voting blocks, each called a tribe. The order of voting was decided by lot before each vote, so a tribe would be selected at random, vote, and then another tribe would be selected. Tribes were originally geographical. There were four urban tribes who lived in the city, and 31 rural tribes, although a lot of these were in the neighbourhood of Rome. Originally, there were only three tribes, but as Rome expanded, more and more were added, until they reached 35, when new citizens were placed in already existing tribes. So, Italy was essentially a patchwork of tribes. While many in the urban tribes would vote, as they lived in the city, only the wealthy could afford to travel from the country into Rome to vote. This meant that the wealthy also effectively controlled this assembly too. During the Italian agricultural crisis in the 2nd century BC, many emigrated from the country to Rome, but still remained enrolled in the rural tribes. It was this change in the balance of power that allowed opponents to the senatorial machine to get into office which led to the fall of the Republic. But I digress. The committed tributor elected the lower magistrates, the curaladiles, and the quaestors. It could also pass laws. The Concilium Plebis, or Plebeian Council, was essentially the same as the Committed Tributor, only it was made up of plebs, 
no patricians were allowed. Patricians were the old nobility, the traditional aristocracy who could trace their ancestors back to the time of Romulus. Supposedly, they originally had a monopoly on power, but by the 3rd century BC, most of these privileges had gone. Rather than being presided over by a senior magistrate, such as a consul or a praetor, the Concilium plebis was presided over by a tribune of the plebs, who was elected by the Concilium plebis. The plebeian ediles were also elected by this body. As I said, I'll deal with the magistrates later. Originally, laws passed by the Concilium plebis, plebiscites, were only applicable to plebs, but after 287 BC, they gained the full force of law, and applied to everyone. After this date, most legislation came from the council. So, those were the assemblies. Now, on to the magistrates. We'll be going over the consuls, the praetors, the censors, the ediles, the quaestors, the tribunals of the plebs, the pro-magistrates, and, of course, the dictator. The consulship was the most powerful office in the Roman Republic. There were two elected each year, usually in midsummer, to serve as consuls for the next year. They could each veto the actions of the other. While within the limits of the Pomerium, the city boundaries of the city, the consuls were the head of the government, superior to all magistrates, with the exception of the tribunes. While subordinates, other offices were independent. The consuls oversaw the running of the government, and were responsible for executing laws. They had the power of summons and arrest. They were the chief ambassadors of Rome. They served as chairman in the Senate in turn for one month each, and could summon the three comitai, the curia, the centuriata, and the tributa. So, in effect, they could propose laws. These civil functions would be performed by the praetor Urbanus, the urban praetor, if both consuls were absent from the city. Each consul was accompanied by twelve bodyguards, called lictors, who each carried the fasces, a bundle of rods and an axe. The rod symbolised the power to scourge, while the axe showed the power to kill. Capital punishment, that is, not to go on a murder spree. The axe would not be carried within the city, to show that a citizen could not be put to death without a trial. While the consuls had these civil powers, they were also the commanders-in-chief of the Roman army. A Roman military career and political career, at this stage in Rome's history, could not be separated. Next, the praetors. Confusingly, the consuls were originally called praetors, but became consuls in the mid-4th century BC, when the urban praetorship was created, initially as an equal to the consuls. The urban praetor would relieve the consuls of their judicial functions, and became the chief justice. He would have to stay in Rome, though, as you can tell by his title. He could only leave Rome for ten days at a time. As Rome became increasingly involved with the outside world, a second praetorship was created in 246 BC, the Praetor Peregrinus. This office would deal with judicial matters between Romans and foreigners. In 227 BC, 
two additional praetors were added to govern Sicily and Sardinia. And in 197 BC, another two praetorships were created to govern the two Spains, bringing the number to six. Each praetor had six lictors, half that of a consul. They could each veto each other and were bound by the veto of a consul. A praetor and a consul could also be excused from their usual duties and given special assignments by the Senate. This would occur frequently during the Punic Wars. Now to examine the censors. The censorship was an office held by two people elected by the Comita Curia, later the Comita Centuriata, once every five years. They originally held the office for the whole five years, but soon this was reduced to 18 months. The censors were chosen out of the group of ex-consuls. While it had no formal power, it was the most prestigious office. They had three basic functions. The first, and most important, was to conduct the census, the registering of citizens and their property, and deciding who qualified as a censor and an equestrian. Indeed, the patricians created this office to remove these powers from the consulship so they would find it easier to maintain their domination. They also had a somewhat vague instruction to protect public morals, and they had significant control of state finance, being able to construct building projects which would be contracted out to wealthy individuals or equestrian syndicates. The Via Appia from Rome into Campania was constructed by Appius Claudius during his censorship, and the Via Flaminia to the Po Valley was constructed by Gaius Flaminius during his. This is most certainly not the last time we will be dealing with Gaius Flaminius. See Lake Tresemine. We shall now move on to the Ediles. There were two types of Ediles. Curral and Plebeian. There were two of each type. The Plebeian Ediles were an older institution, dating back to the secession of the plebs, and were originally assistants to the tribunes. They later kept guard of decrees of the Senate and of the Plebeian Council, and would fulfil the duties of the censors, if they were unable to fulfil them. In 367 BC, an extra day of games was added to the calendar, but the Aediles refused to pay for it. The patricians offered to pay for it, if they had access to the Aedileship, and thus the choral Aediles were born. While they each had slightly differing functions, the plebeian Aediles would preside over solely plebeian games, while some would be dealt with exclusively by the choral Aediles, and they were each elected by different assemblies, the plebeian by the plebeian council, and the choral by the committer tributor. And while the choral Aedileship was more prestigious, they had essentially become the same office. They would take care of the city physically, make sure the city was well supplied with food, issue economic edicts, and paid for games. After the Second Punic War, these displays would become highly extravagant, but that is another story. The next office to look at is that of Quaestor, elected by the Committed Tributor. 
originally appointed by the consul to investigate criminal matters, the quaestorship eventually became an elected office, and the minimum requirement to be a senator. By about 420 BC, there were four quaestors, but by 267 BC, that number had been upped to eight. To put it simply, they were finance officers. Some supervised the treasury in Rome, while others were attached to the generals and governors in the provinces, and took care of military expenditure. Nice and simple. Now we'll look at the tribunate. Along with the plebeian ship and the plebeian council, the tribunate was created because of the secession of the plebs, supposedly in 494 BC. Elected by the plebeian council, they were the plebeian weapon against the patrician consulate. They were sacrosanct, inviolable. They could not be interfered with. They could even order capital punishment against those who were interfering with their actions. Technically speaking, as they were elected by the plebeian council, rather than an assembly, they were not magistrates, and had no official powers. However, they could impose their sacrosanctity onto other things. Not vetoing a bill, but stopping, say, the act of reading a bill. This sounds a bit confusing, but in effect it gave the tribunes power to veto every single act of government, and they could not be vetoed themselves, unless by another tribune. As I just said, it wasn't technically a veto, but it is just easier to call it a veto, and so that is what I shall call it. The tribune would eventually, by our period, be able to propose laws to the plebeian council, but they were the defenders of civil liberties. If a magistrate took action against a citizen, they could shout, Ego te provoco, I challenge you, which appealed the magistrate's decision, or action, to the tribune. The tribune had to be present to veto an action, and was only sacrosanct within the city of Rome. The tribune had to be a plebeian. They were originally two, but by 449 BC, that number had increased to ten. Next, the pro-magistrates. There were several different pro-magistrates. The pro-quaestor, the pro-praetor, and the pro-consul. Basically, a pro-magistrate acted in place of a normal magistrate. They had equal power, although were subordinate to the current magistrate were attended by the same number of lictors. They had usually previously held the office in question, but this wasn't necessary. It was a clever legal innovation that allowed commanders to hold continued command without violating the principle of annual magistrates, a keystone of the republican system. It came into being during the Samnite Wars, and was often used during the Second Punic War. Eventually, the pro-magistrates commanding the theatres of war became governors. Pro-magistratorial power was granted by the Senate, and usually lasted a single year, though, in special circumstances, longer periods in power were given, such as Gipio Africanus's extended command in Spain. Finally, with regards to magistrates, we move on to the dictatorship. First things first. 
I'm sure you're asking yourself why I am saying dictator rather than dictator. This is for several reasons, such as that is the actual pronunciation. It is a long A rather than a short A. And it also avoids the baggage that the word dictator has attached to it. The dictatorship was a perfectly constitutional office, unlike its modern relative. So, what was the dictatorship? In an emergency, sometimes singular action is needed, rather than the complex and a painfully slow governance system that accompanies democracy. If there was an emergency, the Senate could authorise the consuls to appoint a man who had previously been consul to be dictator. He would take the place of the two consuls for six months, or until he finished the task. The rule that the man must have already been consul was sometimes ignored. The consul should make the proposal in Rome, if he could, but if not, he could make the proposal in camp. But the proposal had to be made in Italy. It could not take place in the provinces. This replacement of the consuls is seen by the number of lictors the dictator had. Rather than the twelve of the consul, the dictator had twenty-four. The dictator was the only magistrate immune to the tribune's veto. He ruled by decree, and had both executive and military functions, which could be used depending on the nature of the crisis. He also appointed a deputy dictator, the Magister Equitum, Master of the Horse. The Master of the Horse was of comparative rank as the Praetor, but was the representative of the dictator in his absence, and could thus exercise the same power. The Master of the Horse would automatically resign when the dictator exited his dictatorship. Originally, the dictator was called Magister Populi, Master of the People, and so would have commanded the infantry in battle, while the Master of the Horse commanded the cavalry. I find that quite interesting. Anyway, that is enough for the magistrates. We'll finish off today by looking at the Senate. Now, before I went in-depth into Roman history, I mistakenly believed the Senate was a legislative assembly, very similar to modern ones. I was mistaken. The Senate is in fact completely powerless. It cannot make laws, it has no technical authority. The Senate was an advisory council to the King, and later the consuls. This reflects its membership. Qualification to the Senate was to have been quaestor, and then selected by the censor. So the Senate is a body of ex-magistrates. The Latin word senatus derives from the word senex, meaning old man. What the Senate lacked in de jure power, it more than made for in de facto gravitas. Its members were the magistrates who ran the state, and so the censors were the most qualified and most respected people to deal with politics. People would listen to the Senate. It became practice for the magistrates to ask the Senate for advice on issues, and once they had asked for advice, they would listen to the Senate. There are several reasons as to why they obeyed the Senate. There is the already mentioned reason that the Senators were the most qualified people to deal with the issues, 
and then it must be remembered that magistrates would join the Senate and spend much more time as a senator than as a magistrate. He could ignore the Senate, but he would be marginalised once his term was up. So the Senate's decisions were practically law, even though it was not a legislative assembly. The major sphere where the Senate's expertise was most definitely listened to was foreign policy. As foreign policy becomes the overriding issue during the period we shall be studying, we'll see the Senate's power grow. The Senate was made up of about 300 senators, who would be divided by their seniority, the ex-censors and ex-consuls being the most senior and speaking first in debates, followed by the ex-praetors and finally the ex quaestors There would be a magistrate presiding over the meeting, usually a consul, who would call the Senate, state his proposal, and then give it to the Senate for discussion. All members of the Senate would state their opinion in a grand debate, and then they would vote. The vote must take place in that session, and if a senator opposed the measure, when it was his turn to give his opinion, he could talk for the rest of the day, so there would be no time for a vote. I am, of course, talking about the filibuster, something still present in modern politics. As with modern filibusters, what was said did not have to be relevant to the debate at all. One thinks of US Senator Al Diamato, who in one filibuster read the phone book for the District of Columbia. But back to the Roman Senate. They were not paid, so had to be wealthy. There were regulations on how you could make your money. The respectable thing for a senator to be involved with was land and agriculture. Land was natural. Land was old. Land was good. The sea was unnatural, and naval trade was new. The sea was bad. This worldview is represented in the Roman preference for land warfare over sea warfare. It also shows the Roman idea of Mos Maiorum, the ways of our ancestors. The Romans believed things were better in the past, and things were deteriorating constantly. In the past there was the Age of Gold, the Age of Silver, the Age of Bronze and the Age of Heroes, all superior to the current age. This mindset is crucial to understanding Roman history. Politicians, notably Augustus, would claim they were reviving old traditions rather than making reforms. The Roman word for revolution, res nova, means new things. This is completely different to the mindset of the modern West, where newness is prized. Everything is new this or new that, whether it be the advertisements of new coke or the politics of new labour. On that note, Let's end this introduction to the Roman Constitution. Remember, you can visit us online.blogspot.com Like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash the history of podcast. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash the history of pod. And subscribe to us on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash the History of Podcast. As always, feel free to drop me an email at thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com.
As listeners of my Alexander the Great podcast will know, on the website there are links to the British and American Amazon stores. If you go to Amazon through those links, I will get a portion of whatever you spend from Amazon. It is a great way to support the show, while getting things you would already be buying. When I mention this, I like to give a recommendation for what you should buy. A link will be attached on the website. So this week, I'll recommend Food in History by Rie Tannehill. Recently, I've been fascinated by Roman food, and will be trying out some Roman recipes. This may lead to a cooking walkthrough on YouTube or something like that, I don't know. But it is all very interesting. One of the things Food in History does is look at the role food played in history, and it is all very interesting stuff. For instance, it looks at the reforms of Solon in Athens. Specifically, the one which dates only olives can be exported from Attica. It then explores the effects of this, such as olive roots drawing nutrients out of the soil without fertilising the topsoil, forcing the city to rely on food imports, which would be a huge weakness during the Peloponnesian War. All interesting stuff. I'd also like to thank anyone who has left an iTunes review so far. Reviews, especially the written reviews, have a huge effect on the iTunes charts, as well as being useful in letting me know what people like and don't like about the show. So thank you very, very much. My thanks also go to Peter John Ross for the music, and thanks to you for listening. Join me next time when we get into my favourite subject in the world, the Roman military.